We are going to look at 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6, all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 21, begins with, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? As I read this passage, and not just what I just read, but what was to come, I could not help but think and picture teenage or youthful pride and rebellion. Now, again, I'm thankful for so many of the youth that we have here that are so godly and pursuing the Lord. But I remembered back to my teenage years. Do you remember back to your teenage years? Were you one of those kind of teenagers? I have a picture in an album at home that my parents love to show me whenever I visit. It never gets old to them. And I am in this picture. I'm on vacation with my parents. My parents were totally uncool to me at the time. And I was the epitome of coolness. I'm wearing my John Lennon sunglasses. How many of you remember those? And some short running shorts that were cool at the time. And I just thought I was all that and a bag of chips. You couldn't have told me anything I didn't already know. And as I read this passage and I thought about the Corinthians, remember, Paul is dealing with them because of their divisions. They are divided. And they're divided because they're immature. And they're immature because they've been soaking in and what the world is saying is cool and not cool. What the world says is good and not good. All of their advice, all their wisdom, all their opinions are being generated by the world and it's left them immature and it's caused divisions among them. And they're so puffed up in their pride and their arrogance, just like I was as a 17 or 18-year-old young man, thought I knew it all and I stood there in this picture with a scowl on my face because I was with my parents camping And I was just full of a self-inflated ego. And I look back on it and you think, I thought I was so cool at the time, but you look back on those pictures and you go, what was I thinking? Parachute pants and all the other stuff that we wore. The guys that wear their pants down nowadays, they're going to look back on that someday. Looks cool now, but it was Mark Twain that's credited with saying, when I was 18, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much that old man had learned in three years. (laughs) So today we'll be talking about pride and humility. This passage naturally lends itself to this discussion. Pride, someone else said, is the only disease that makes everyone sick but the person who has it. Pride is the mother of all sins, the sin of the devil, the sin in the garden, It's the mother of all sins. It's so dangerous because it is the most committed and the least confessed. God himself knows what it's like to raise arrogant and rebellious kids who don't appreciate what they've been given. Isaiah 1, verses 2 and 3, God asks heaven and earth to be witnesses to this. He says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. He says, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib or its feeding trough, but Israel does not know my people do not consider. 
So in that passage, God looks at the rebellious pride of his own people, like children that he raised up. So if you've raised children, if you've experienced that pride and rebelliousness and arrogance and know-it-all spirit that can be present in some teenagers, you will appreciate what Paul is dealing with, with the Corinthians, and you appreciate what God is saying when he says, I've nourished and brought up children, and they have rejected me or rebelled against me. He says, it's dumber than an ox. An ox knows where its owner is. An ox knows who owns it. And an ox was a dumb animal, a beast of burden. And a donkey, even dumber, at least knows where it gets fed, knows where its food comes from. And didn't Jesus teach us to pray, give us this day our daily bread? So the ox knows, the donkey knows, but God's people in our pride, we forget. Any parent that has tried to talk sense into and know-it-all teen knows exactly and understands exactly what this passage is talking about. Paul had been talking to them about faithfulness just in the previous verses that, that we're stewards. The right way to look at leadership in the church is not as a cult of personality, not as entertainers that you come to church with this entertainment attitude like, well, the pastor better be good today because I brought friends. He better be funny today. But we're not entertainers and we appreciate when the church is mature enough to say, we want to judge our pastor by the right things. Does he feed us the word? Or do we come just for the entertainment factor? And there's no sin in being enjoyable and preaching in an enjoyable way. Howard Hendricks said, the greatest sin is boring people with the word of God. We don't want to bore people with God's word, but we don't want to rely on just creating entertainment at the expense of actually going through the word of God. So Paul says, the responsibility, I'm just a steward. I'm a person, a slave a master slave that has responsibility to just give out, take care of what the master has given me to take care of. And it's on the heels of that discussing faithfulness, that that's what's needed. If you have a responsibility, if you've been given something to take care of, now you have a responsibility to the one who owns it to take care of it on their behalf. So we ended last week with the question, are you trustworthy? What has God given you? And are you using it for his glory? Small things, big things, whatever it is, Can God look at you and say, you know what? I trust you, therefore I'm going to give you this. And then God gives you this. And the question is, what have you done with that? Have you used it? Or are you just a spectator at church? You're just going through the motions, showing up and really not seeing that God has given you something he wants you to use on his behalf. Well, on the heels of that, now Paul brings this whole discussion to a close. By the end of chapter four, we'll sort of switch gears a little bit or transition into a new section. But for now, he says, Verse six, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake. So this is the real issue in the church. It seems there's a pro-Apollos contingency in the group. Apollos, remember, was this fantastic orator. He was very likely entertaining or at least compelling. When he spoke, he had you hanging on the edge of your seat. But Paul didn't have such a great gift. His gifts lay in other places. And so there was a pro-Apollos contingency in the church, and that seemed to be spreading, causing division. And there was an anti-Paul group in the church that looked down on Paul as lesser than Apollos. And then by joining themselves to Apollos, they would think better of themselves. And this is what's happening there. And so Paul tells them how their gods feel. Apollos and Paul, they're just co-laborers working on behalf of God. And how their God's house, the temple of God and 
Paul's a builder and Apollos is a builder, but you are the temple. And he goes on through these pictures, stewardship and all of these things. And he says, now I talked about these things. I applied them to us so you could see our humility, so you could understand us right, so you can understand yourselves right as well. That's what he says. I've transferred these things to myself and Apollos for your sakes so that you may learn. That's what Paul is interested in. Like rebellious or self-willed teenagers full of pride, he's trying to deal with that. He says, I'm trying to teach you so that you can learn in us, applying it to himself first. A good teacher always applies the word to him or herself first. I'm applying it to me first, Paul says, and to Apollos, so that you can learn not to think beyond what is written. What is written where? Well, we don't exactly know for sure, but one could certainly say beyond what Paul has written to the church, that you wouldn't think yourself more than a servant or more than a steward or more than a co-laborer. You're not the one who lays the foundation. Paul said, Paul laid the foundation. You can't lay any other foundation. That the Corinthians wouldn't think of themselves more and that we wouldn't think of us ourselves as more than who we really are. It's interesting. There's two tests of pride and humility. One is success and the other is failure. If you have issues with pride in your life, that will be revealed in your success as well as in your failure. How you handle success will be tainted by pride and how you handle failure will be tainted by pride. But when a humble person succeeds, they don't get inflated by that. And when a humble person fails, they don't get discouraged by that. They know who they are. And that's really what humility is. It's not thinking more of yourself or thinking less of yourself. It's having a reasonable biblical estimation of who you are. The only way to have that is to know God. So that's why Paul is going through these things for the Corinthians, that they would learn not to think beyond what is written, not just what Paul wrote to them, but in the whole of the Bible. In the whole of the Bible, we see the glory of God and the humility of man all the way through the Bible. God is God, I am not, that makes it easy. Can we agree with that? And then he gives them the diagnosis. So I want you to learn, he says, first, we've been an example, we've been a demonstration of humility, but also that I want to give you the diagnosis that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Again, the puffing up was on behalf of Apollos against Paul. We love that word, puffed up. Oh, he's so puffed up. It literally means to be inflated, to be blown up, or to cause to swell up. That's the diagnosis. Seven times in the New Testament, this word puffed up is used. Six of those seven times, guess where they occur? In the first letter to the Corinthian church. They had issues, huge issues, with a hugely inflated ego. They thought way more of themselves than they should have. You know, when I say the word ego, you know that's Latin for the word I, me. Egocentrism means me at the center. When we come to church and we give our lives to Christ, we move from being egocentric, me first, me at the center, to Christocentric. That means Jesus is first, or you could say theocentric, theos is God. So we are Jesus-centric or God-centric. That's what gives you the appropriate personality, the appropriate uh, esteem, not higher self-esteem, not lower self-esteem, but appropriate esteem. 
You see, we have it backwards in our culture. I've read this twice just in the last week. G.K. Chesterton wrote about it in his book, Orthodoxy, and then Oz Guinness in his book, The Call. I saw the same thing. In our culture, currently, we are unsure of God, but very certain of ourselves. And that is backwards. That is completely and utterly backwards. You know, you talk to people about, oh, I don't know if God exists, but I am the judge of what's true, and I am the judge of what's good. We're uncertain about God, but very certain about ourselves, and that's backwards. We are meant to be very certain of God, the eternal, the unchanging, and very uncertain of ourselves. So he writes, and the diagnosis is they have inflated egos. The treatment is they have to be deflated. So Paul is going to set about to deflate, to let a little air out. And what you'll see is phenomenal. Paul presents this. It's so real. It's so personal. And it's a little bit uh, sarcastic. And there's some irony. Watch as we go through. It's pretty fantastic. So he gives them three questions to help deflate their overinflated egos. The questions involve who, what, and why. Now watch what happens. Verse 7 says, for who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? And now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Those are great questions to develop humility. If you can answer those questions with a biblical perspective, you will cultivate humility in your life. But if you don't know God, verse seven, who makes you different from another? It's me. It's my hard work. I wanted it more. I worked harder. And there's no problem with hard work. God is all about hard work. But you got to have a starting place. So who makes you different from another? Notice this. Differences are to be expected. Differences are good. God never meant for us to be clones. He would have created us as such. So notice the problem in the Corinthian church, the problem in our church, the problem in our day is not that people are different. The problem is, is that people think that they're different because of all of their hard work. Can I ask you a question? Did you choose what family to be born into? Did you choose what country to be born into? Did you choose your athletic ability? Did you choose your genetic structure? Did you choose your IQ? You didn't choose any of that stuff. Some of these things, you guys know I love athletics. I love cycling. And you do some research on the pro and elite cyclists, guys like Lance Armstrong, aside from the chemical help that he had. Some of you guys may remember a guy named Greg LeMond. These guys, they have what's called a VO2 max. That's their ability for their body to use oxygen. That's set from the time you're born. And these guys are like off the charts high. That's how you can become an elite aerobic athlete because you're born with a basic ability to do it whether it's basketball or mathematics or music. Yes, you can improve some, but there are some of you, I've heard you sing all the voice lessons in the world. Ain't gonna help you. That's why we're glad the Bible says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. We can do that. You are not the next American Idol, nor am I. So there's the grace of God You see, here's what happens. When you think it's all about you and you're a self-made person, your pride inflates you. But when you understand the grace of God, that the Bible says that God weaved you together in your mother's womb and that it was God, he's the potter and I'm the clay. And he made me the way that I am. When you embrace that, then it's humbling. 
then you realize that whatever I have, whatever musical gift or, or thinking ability or reasoning ability or talent or gift, spiritual gift, even for them, it was about spiritual gifts. They were puffed up because one could speak in tongues and another couldn't. They could find a way to puff themselves up about anything. But none of that they created on their own. It was all given to them. And when that is your perspective, when you recognize it's a stewardship that I've given responsibility to use what God has given me, now you're filled with gratitude and responsibility and not pride. A mature response to looking at the gifts in your own life is not pride, which separates you from other people, which puts you above other people, and then you become condescending to other people. You have to lower yourself. Oh, thank you for condescending to my lower level. But when you recognize this is from God, then that develops gratitude and responsibility. That's a mature response to the things in your life. So who? Who? The answer is God. Who makes you different? God does. And what do you have that you did not receive? Again, if you have something, you didn't get it yourself. You were given the ability. If you make a lot of money, who gave you the ability to work? Who gave the ability to think in a business kind of manner? Look, giving, when we talk about giving in church, there's a lot of churches. I mean, I think you can come at giving from the standpoint of, well, we need money. Money is great for ministry, but the greatest gift in giving is the cultivating of humility. Did you know that? Because when you have money, when you have things and you give them, it's an acknowledgement that God has given these, these things aren't mine. And without God's ability, I'd never have them in the first place. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. It doesn't come up from below. Well, there's some gifts that come up from below, but they're not gifts you want. And he says, now, indeed, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Great question. If you have to answer, yes, who makes me different from another? God does. And what do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Now, if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I don't know. That's what the teenager is going to say. I don't know. Samson, full of pride, thought, ah, the gift is mine. I can turn it on, turn it off whenever I want it. And then he gets his hair cut off and he expects that he's just going to get up and shake off the ropes like he had done all those other times. And he did not know that the Lord had departed from him, that the Lord was the one gifting him. Nebuchadnezzar looks out of his balcony and says, oh, look at the kingdom I've created. And then the next scene, he's eating grass like an ox out in the front yard. That's another story. Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the greatest musicians who ever lived, he was such a great musician and his scores were so complex that people thought his music was sinful because it was too complex. But he started all his pieces, not all, but many of his pieces with the letters JJ. Did you know that? At the top of his scores, he would write JJ, which in Latin means Jesus help. He would write his score and at the end, he would write the initials SDJ. Solia Deo Gloria for the glory of God alone. That's humility. Humility doesn't mean you can never excel, but it means when you do excel, you recognize where your excellence comes from. I wanted you to guess who wrote this. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined 
in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. When hazard a guess, how about Abraham Lincoln? A proclamation of a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Don't you think we could use that today? We've forgotten the God that made us. We've forgotten the God who made America an excellent nation. Job himself would say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So he goes on to say in verse eight to the Corinthians, now he starts this contrast and pointing out from their perspective, he says, you are already full, glutted or satiated or crammed full. You are already rich or affluent. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign that we also might reign with you. So Paul looks at them in this contrast to himself. Notice the words already and without us. That's what you're meant to see in this little section. They're already reigning as kings. They're already living it up as if the kingdom of God had been fully realized. They'd already arrived, that there was nothing else to attain. Just glide on home and now the celebration begins. They were so enamored with their own wealth. See, they were wealthy, but they were really poor. They thought they were full. Do you see the irony Paul is using? But they were really empty. They thought they were wise and mature, but they were really foolish and immature. How easy it is to make a false examination of our own lives. We see that in the Bible over and over again. You think that you're seeing well and that you're doing well and that life is good, but you're really poor, blind, and naked. It's so easy to be self-deceived. The heart is deceptive and wicked. So he says to them, it's like you guys are already reigning as kings. You're sitting in the judgment seat like kings. You're already doling out judgment like you've arrived in the kingdom. We talk about the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God now or later? Now? Later. How about both? Don't we read in Philippians that Jesus humbled himself? He made himself of no reputation, took on human flesh, then became a servant, and then was crucified like a humiliated slave. And then we read also that God then has exalted him so that his name is above every other name and that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Is that happening today? Is every knee bowing to Jesus? No, some knees are bowing, my knee, your knee bowing. Today, do we live in a world where there is perfect peace? Is Jesus on the throne today? And we live in a country, in a a world where there's perfect peace? No, we have glimpses. Listen, the kingdom is now because Jesus is reigning in our hearts. The spirit of God has been poured out, but we do not yet see the fulfillment of all of that. God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven today. Believe me, folks, if this is as good as it gets, if we're living in the kingdom now, then we got problems. There's much more to come. Someday every knee will bow. See, the irony that Paul is showing here is that they're reigning as kings because they're pleasing the world. If they were pleasing Jesus, the world would probably reject them. Why? Because the world rejected Jesus. Oh, it gets better. He says, verse nine, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death 
For we have been made a spectacle. That's the word where we get theater. We have been made a theater, a spectacle. Everybody's watching to both the world and angels and to men. So Paul makes a reference that they would have been familiar with, not so familiar to us, a triumphal victory parade. If you were a Roman Caesar and you went out conquering and you conquered more land, you would bring the booty back with you. You would come back, you'd have a parade, all your military, you would march through the city and the crowds would line and the crowds would cheer. Somewhat like one of the greatest, I guess one of the greatest battles that we experience on the face of the earth, that thing called the Super Bowl. And after the victory, there's a Super Bowl parade. I happen to be from Philadelphia. So I watched as the Super Bowl winning Eagles paraded through the city streets and everybody went crazy. Talk about the ultimate in pride, the ultimate in human performance and human achievements as we celebrate. And Paul says, well, I understand the parade. I understand the pride with the parade. The problem is you guys are out there leading the parade and cheering yourselves on for the victory you've had. But Paul says, I'm like one of the captives at the end. See, the reigning, the conquering king at the end of the parade would be the booty, the people that were captured. They would be chained or brought in with ropes and led behind the parade, brought into the theater, to the arena, where they would be fed to the animals as entertainment, humiliated in front of everybody. So Paul says, it's wonderful you guys are reigning as kings. Wonderful you guys have arrived but I'm more like one of these captives at the end. It's like the winning Super Bowl team bringing the losing team in on chains and parading them through the city. Do you see Paul making this comparison between their supposed pride in being worldly and immature and Paul and his humiliation? Because when you serve the Lord and when you stand for him, the world who embraces worldliness will reject godliness. And so Paul is just making this clear. And as they would come into the arena, those captives, whether they would fight each other or be fed to the animals, would turn to the Caesar and the crowd and say, we who are about to die salute you. And that's what Paul says he's like. What a contrast, isn't it? What a contrast between the apostles. Remember, Paul doesn't just apply that to himself, but all the apostles, all those that are out serving the Lord, really serving the Lord, are dealing with that kind of treatment. Look, it gets worse even after that. More contrast. Watch as I read this, the difference between we and you. Paul says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise, verse 10, or literally conceited in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, glorious, honorable, but we are dishonored. We are without honor. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten, literally punched with a fist like a master punching his slave and homeless, and we labor, that would have been dishonorable. High-class people, they didn't work with their hands in that culture. And we labor working with our own hands. Paul was a tent maker. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. And some of this, no doubt, Paul is applying to himself and the Corinthians. The Corinthians were reviling him. The Corinthians were, in a sense, persecuting him and defaming him. And he's showing an appropriate response. You know, in a culture where pride exists, if you insult me, ha, I'm insulting you back twice as fast, twice as hard, twice as dirty. If you slap me, I'm slapping you back twice as fast, twice as hard. This is where the whole gang mentality comes from. The pride of the gang. Hey, 
You took out one of ours, we're taking out four years. Oh yeah, you took out four of ours, we're taking out 10 years. It's all pride, arrogance, conceit. And so Paul is just showing we are fools for Christ's sake because they were the only ones that were really wise. And there they are picturing themselves in the arena. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you, oh, you're so conceited. I don't know about you, but as I read this, I got really convicted. I just thought of myself and our own church and my own life and how easy we have it and how easy it is just to show up and roll along. And I wonder how many people would be here if we met in a falling down shack and sat on hay bales. Really? We got a hard time if it rains. Oh, it's raining. I'm not going to church today. Why? It's raining. Makes me uncomfortable. We argue about temperature. We argue about, in our pride, we argue about the piddly little things. Because in a sense, we don't know, but what we're revealing is just our pride that we deserve better. When we were in the high school, when we're meeting in a public school, a lot of people didn't come. I'm not going to go to church that meets in a school. Why? I'm above that. I want to go to the nice facility. And look, listen carefully. There's not a problem having a nice facility, except the problem that our own success can be our own undoing. We pray, oh, Lord, bless me. And then he blesses us. We think we did it. And it blows everything out of the water. This is convicting to me. And I look around and go, what have we become? Where are we? Where am I personally? Am I willing to labor to be reviled and still bless in return? Or do I fight for, oh, my rights? You know, the Christian community in America, sometimes we're so busy fighting about our rights and wanting the world to recognize who we are and what we stand for. They're going to find that out when you're willing to suffer. You see, the kingdom is here, yes, and coming, but Jesus had to suffer before he reigned. He had to have a no reputation before everyone would bow down to him and every knee would bow at his name. The Corinthians thought they already arrived in the fulfillment of the kingdom. And what Paul is saying, no, we're still in the time of suffering. And for Paul, the real proof of apostleship would not be that you drive a fancy car and wear a fancy suit. I mean, think about it. This undoes the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine, doesn't it? I mean, it totally shoots a hole right in the heart of the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine. L.A. preachers or whatever else you want to see on TV. Nonsense. That the pastor deserves to wear a nice fancy suit and drive the nicest car. Not in Paul's world. Not in Jesus's world. Matter of fact, Alan Redpath, the commentator, said this. Here, Paul and I have parted company. Why? Because though deep down in my heart, I can face you and say that to the best of my knowledge, I want this life, which glories not in the flesh, but only in the Lord. And maybe you could say amen to that. There is something in all of us that wants both. See, Paul says, we have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. How many of you all compost at home? You know what I mean when I say compost some of you greeneries out there, folks that are into the green life, the recycling life, at the end of the meal, instead of putting your food in the garbage can, you put it in a little bucket called a compost bucket. Do you do that? Ours sits at the counter way too long until the whole kitchen smells, and that's usually my cue to take it out. Or usually Helga says, Dee, do you smell something, Steve? Yeah, I'll take it out. So we got a bin in the yard, we put the compost, and then we put it in the garden. But the off-scouring is just as it sounds when you're washing the dishes. It's, it's one thing to have a dirty dish to be the dish that is dirty. Paul says, we're lower than the dirty dish. We're the dirt that gets scraped off of the dish. 
That's what he says. That's what an off-scouring is. We are the scum of the earth, is what Paul says. What a contrast. Talk about humility builder. Are you feeling humbled? (laughs) But Paul says, look, I don't write these things to shame you, verse 14. But as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. So just in case they're picking up on his quite intended irony and sarcasm, which they're meant to pick up on, he's kind of pushed their hand a little bit. He's pushed them to the edge and now he backs off and he says, look, church, I'm not writing these things to shame you. See, Paul doesn't want to have to shame them. That would be opposite of his message. He wants God to develop humiliation. in them. He doesn't want to have to humiliate them, to knock them down, to deflate them. He wants this to be developed by right teaching, right understanding in the word of God. So he says, I'm not writing to shame you, but like a father and his children, a father has a role in his children's life to, well, the word here is admonish or warn. It means loving correction for the other party's good. We are competent to counsel or to admonish or to warn one another is what Paul says to the Romans. That's part of a role we have with each other. When we see someone overtaking the fault, we go to them, we say, hey, you're heading down a bad road. And so Paul says, like a father, I'm bringing this correction to you. Think about Eli the priest. We've been studying 1 Samuel on Wednesday nights. Eli the priest, the condemnation of God for him was that he failed. He saw the immorality of his kids. He saw their behavior and their corruption, and he failed to intervene. We live in the world where parents just want their kids to be their friends, and they're afraid to do, afraid to do anything to correct them, lest they get upset, and we make them upset. And so we cater to their every whim and to their every need, so we keep them happy. And we're their friends, and we fail to be their parents. There's a loving way to do that, and that's what Paul demonstrates here with the Corinthian church. He says, though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ. I mean, teachers are a dime a dozen in the body of Christ. You can flip open the computer and go to YouTube and you can have a teaching from everybody from Joel Osteen to Charles Stanley to whoever you want. You can find it there on the internet. You have 10,000 teachers, instructors. But Paul says, I gave birth to you. So he's sort of giving an authority statement. Here's why I have the authority to say these things to you. It's because I'm the one that labored to bring you guys to birth in Christ. I shared the gospel with you for 18 months. I was with you. I gave up my life to come and share the gospel so you could be saved. I think that earns me a little place in your life. Don't you feel that as parents? I go back to our illustration as parents raising teenagers. Don't you feel like, hey, I changed your diapers. I made sure there was food on the table. I worked two jobs as a single parent. Did my best to give you all that I could. And now you're thumbing your nose in my face and thinking that other people are going to love you more and do more for you and turning away to whoever's on the internet or whatever your friends are saying, whatever's cool and popular. And we know that feeling, don't we? You ever watch your kids get hijacked by the world? Paul experienced the labor pains to bring them to Christ. You can have 10,000 instructors. This was the Greek word for the slave. In education in those days was a little different. The children had a where we get the word pedagogue, a slave who the master, the household, put in charge of making sure the child's needs were met, make sure they got the right clothes, their lunch was packed, walked them to school, all of that. And then the teacher just simply did instruction. So there were two people involved in that child's life. So what Paul refers to here is you can have 10,000 of these people that care for your other needs, but you can only have one father. 
Only one mother. You know, I talked to parents about this. I remember talking to a woman in our church that was talking about, should I go back to work? Should I not go back to work? Just asking that question. And in our pride, we can have an inflated view of our own self-importance. Well, no one can do that job like I can. No one can be that thing like I can be. When I left my business, I heard it all. People play to your pride. Oh, Steve, no one can do it like you can. And because they want something, that's flattery, plays to your pride. Oh, really? No one can do it as good as me? Well, now, glad somebody noticed that. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. You know the song, each day I look in the mirror. I I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. But it just plays to our own pride. And you realize that once you're out of the picture, the next guy, the next girl, hey, no, no one can do it like, they've forgotten you so fast. But here's the thing, whatever job you do, a lot of people can do that job. But there's one job you have that no one else on earth can do. That is mom and that is dad. And I would suggest that the best gift can give to your kids is not more money and more things. You make them like spoiled teenagers, like the Corinthians who show up at school, driving a fancy car, wearing fancy clothes, and somehow forget that they didn't earn it themselves, you gave it to them. The best thing you can do is excel at being mom and being dad and teaching them, mentoring them in godliness. And that's what he says here, verse 16. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Not them, not worldliness. Imitate me. See, they were embarrassed of Paul. They wanted Paul to be like them. But Paul is saying, no, you should be like me. Mimic me is the Greek word. Can you say that? Can you say that to your children? Imitate me as I imitate Christ? What if every Christian in this room looked to you for an example of what it looked like to live the Christian life? How would the church be? Would anything be getting done? Would there be any money in the offering plate? What would be happening? What if everybody mimicked you in terms of what it looked like to be a Christian? Doesn't that raise the bar a little bit? We just say, well, well, you know, don't look at me, look at Christ. But some people don't have a Bible. People you meet at school and at work, they don't have a Bible. The only thing they're going to know of God is you. It says, for this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere and every church. Now, verse 18, as Paul wraps this up, and so do I. He says, now some of you, some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. Underline verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod? Whoa. Or in love and a spirit of gentleness. He says, hey, Corinthians, look, we've laid this all out for four chapters. We've talked about pride and division and humility and immaturity. I've given you the information. Now it's up to you. Are you going to receive it? Do you hear the fatherly tones in here? Do you need a spanking? Is what he's saying. He's saying, am I going to have to come and give you a spanking? Or are you going to listen and humble yourself? But notice there's some puffed up saying, you know, Paul says he's going to come, but he's sending Timothy. He says he's going to come, but he's sending a letter. And ah, Paul, he's too chicken to come. And Paul says, oh, don't you count on it. I'm coming. I'm going to come there as soon as I can in the will of the Lord. But look at verse 20 as we finish out. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. It doesn't matter what we say. 
The kingdom of God is not about how many Bible studies we go to, how many verses we memorize and we can spout off. The kingdom of God is about the power of God that transforms your life, that takes you from egocentric to Christocentric. That power that gives you a new birth, a new creation. Jesus said there's two doors. There's a wide door and a narrow door. The wide door, lots of people are going through it. The whole world is going through it. It's fancy, it's full of pride, it's full of materialism, it's full of all that the world loves and lusts after. And people will follow the world right through that door. And where does that door lead? Leads to destruction, leads to death. But there's a narrow door, the door of yieldedness to Christ, the door of humility that says, I need a savior. I can't do it myself. The door that says, I can't save myself. The door that says, my trust is in Christ. It's a narrow door and very few find it. But those that find it, find that it leads where? To life.